we started going through the sevens in the book of John, and specifically seven miracles and seven I am's. We did the first miracle, so we got changing water into wine. The seven I am statements are, I'm the bread of life, I'm the light of the world, I'm the gate for the sheep, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the resurrection and the life, I'm the way, the truth and the life, and then I am the true vine. There's two others that I mentioned last time, and we went through one of them, where he's talking to the woman, definitely a woman. She's not married, and she's not a widow. But anyway, she is talking about the Messiah. And in John 4:26, Yeshua said to her, I who speak to you am he, indicating that he is the Messiah. In fact, flat saying so. And the other I am, of course, that's going to be in there that isn't in my list of seven is in uh, John chapter 8 when he's arguing with the Pharisees and he says, before Abraham was, I am. We'll get to those in good order, I hope. So tonight we're going to be down in John again and we're all the way down to verse 46 in chapter 4. And this is the second of his miracles. Back in chapter 2, he went to Jerusalem for the Passover. So he's coming back from Jerusalem after Passover, goes through Samaria, heading for Galilee, and he gets to Capernaum. And there he meets this guy who's some kind of an official who has a sick son. Scripture doesn't say what kind of an official the guy was. He runs into this official, or this guy actually comes to him because the son, one presumes this official, lives somewhere on 20, 25 miles away. So this official has come to Capernaum in hopes of catching Yeshua. It's not a chance meeting, if you will. So 47, when this man heard that Yeshua had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Yeshua said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, one of the commentaries I read said that this was sort of a weak indication that the official was Jewish because he sort of routinely rebukes his own people. If you don't see signs and wonders, you don't believe. So the commentary I read said that's sort of a, a weak sign that this guy actually may be an ethnic Jew as opposed to a Gentile. So anyway, in 48, he sort of speaks starchily to him, saying, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Yeshua said to him, Go, your son will live. Now, a couple of interesting things. Notice that there isn't any requirement for belief on this guy's part. He comes to Yeshua, who he has clearly heard is able to heal, because Yeshua has been healing people all around the area. So he's got a reputation. So we have a sick child. He goes and gets this guy and wants to fetch him and bring him back home to heal him. And so I'm assuming he's thinking, I'm going to have to bring him home and you know, lay hands on him or anoint him with oil or whatever it is this guy does to heal, he'll do it. Yeshua doesn't demand anything whatsoever of this guy. There's no demand for belief. There's no demand for faith. There's no demand for anything. Simply says, you guys don't see a sign you don't believe. Go ahead, he's healed. And that's the extent of the exchange. I have no doubt whatsoever that if he didn't think that there was a possibility of Yeshua healing his son that he would have made the trip. Clearly, that's true. What isn't said at all is what he believes about Yeshua, what he believes about his authority, anything. 
and Yeshua doesn't enlighten him. The guy heads home and meets his servants on the way. They tell him the boy's fever's broken, he's getting better, and the guy says, what time did it happen? It was about the seventh hour, and he then makes correlation that the healing started as soon as Yeshua said it started. Ben says he believed and his whole household believed also. I'm just finding that account very parsimonious. There's not a lot of detail. There's not any indication of what God was trying to accomplish other than the healing of this person and the coming to faith, if you will, of the household of the noble, which I'm sure in God's economy is really important. I'm not suggesting that it's not an important thing. But in these other miracles that we see, there's some bigger point that gets made in the context of his ministry as a Messiah, in the context of fulfilling prophecies that come from the Tanakh. And I don't see anything particular here. When we went through the water into wine, there was just symbolism all over the place. You you had the ashes of the red heifer, you had the six stone jars and hearts of stone filled with the spirit, filled with water. All of the symbolism that happened in that first miracle, I don't see any of that here. This is number two. I have no idea why that was chosen, why he chose to do that, other than demonstrating his ability to heal what's going on. So we're now on to chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Yeshua went up to Jerusalem. We don't know what feast that is. Now we're going to do Passover again in chapter 6. So we did Passover in chapter 2. There's some reason to believe that it might be Sukkot, because Sukkot is associated with the water point, because what happens is they send the guy down to the pool of Siloam, and he scoops up water, and he comes back up, and he pours it over the top of the altar. And at that feast, Yeshua stands up and says, he's the living water, and so forth. So that particular miracle all fits. This one is a different pool, and I'm assuming a different holiday. So it could very well be Shavuot, or it could be Sukkot. And I'm assuming it's not one of the non-canonical feasts because later on he is going to talk about being in Jerusalem at the Feast of Dedication, which is Hanukkah. So this one being described as a Feast of the Jews, I am assuming is one of God's seven, as opposed to one that got assembled on later. All right, so anyway, let's jump into chapter 5 here. So after this was a feast of the Jews, and Yeshua went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Some of your Bibles will have a added-on phrase about when the pool stirred up. That, again, according to the commentary I read, is a late emendation. And the earliest texts don't have it. It would be like in the Texas Receptus, so King James and Derivatives would have it. Uh, My version does not have it. You have a guy laying there who's been an invalid for 38 years, 
when Yeshua saw him laying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me, which would support the previous thing I just said. That for those of you who have that in your Bible, this would support that because he's explaining what the deal is. And by the way, I will suggest that that's probably superstitious. Yeshua said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. Once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. So, a couple things. Thing number one is, do you want to be healed? Sad to say, but there are lots and lots of people who enjoy being ill. They get attention. They get sympathy. In some cases, they get charity. And so forth. So there's, there are lots of human reasons why people who are sick really don't want to be healed. So his question is really very penetrating. Do you want to be healed? In fact, if you remember later on in the book of Acts, Paul is going through town and there's this gal with a demon who keeps following him and talking about it. And finally just turns around and looks at her and says, get out of her. And the demon leaves her and the young girl loses her gift of prophecy and in that process loses her source of income because she had handlers, pimps, I guess, who hired her out to give prophecies and so forth, servant parties and blow up her balloons and do prophecy. And so when she lost that gift of prophecy, she lost her livelihood. Speculation here. I don't know that if Paul had asked her ahead of time, do you want to be rid of this, what she would have said. He didn't ask her. So anyway, Yeshua heals him and says, pick up your bed and get out of here. And of course, he then gets hijacked by the Pharisaic authorities for wandering around carrying a bed on the Sabbath. Now, there's sort of three things that I get out of this. And I'll sort of take them in reverse order. Thing three is a whole bunch of the book of John is going to be him duking it out with the Pharisees over the Sabbath. One of the things that he is adamant about is they really don't understand the purpose of the Sabbath. And so what he does is he periodically kicks sand in their face over the Sabbath so that he can make a point. He's going to do some healings on the Sabbath. He's going to have his disciples walk through the field, picking heads of grain and threshing grain, if you will, between you know, and they're working on the Sabbath. He's going to do all sorts of things on the Sabbath. And it's all by way of making the point that their understanding of the Sabbath is incorrect. So that's sort of the last point he makes, but it's sort of thing one. Thing two is one of the things that's going to happen, and it doesn't happen in this book, but it happens other places, is where John is in prison. And he sends his disciples to Yeshua, and he says, Are you the one, or do we wait for another? Yeshua doesn't answer him directly. And what Yeshua specifically says is, I'm in Matthew 11, uh, verse 4. And Yeshua answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, 
and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Gilean had an insight, and I have not got my mind around it yet. I'm still working on getting my mind around it, so I will give you the state of my encompassment so far. What she says is there are certain things that are done by other prophets, and there are some things that God seems to reserve for himself. So in Exodus 4, the context here is Moses is saying, I don't want to go. Yeah, I can't speak. Go pick somebody else, God. I don't want to do this. And God says, I'm the one that made your mouth. I'm the one that gives you either eloquence or so forth. So what Galen was saying is that God seems to be reserving for himself blindness and speech. He also seems to reserve for himself lameness. So if you go to Isaiah 35, what it says there is, The eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. That's a Messiah passage. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. So if you compare that to what Yeshua says to John's disciples, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. With the exception of raising the dead and cleansing lepers. The rest of those things I think are exclusive to the Messiah. And, and I have not completely research this, so I may be wrong. And if somebody knows of counterexample, by all means, jump right up here and, and, and tell me, because I want to know. But the point is, that's his answer to John. He doesn't say, I'm the one. What he does is he gives a list of the signs that he has done, and John is expected to figure out from that list of signs that he is dealing with the true Messiah. And so now coming back to our cripple at the Pool of Bethesda. Another thing that's going on here is he's doing a Messiah sign. So when he tells this guy to get up and walk, he's curing the lame, and if you will, the lame are leaping like deer or whatever you want to call it in Isaiah. So what he's got here is this is a Messiah sign. And so I see that as a strong reason for doing this particular miracle. And it's kind of interesting that there were a whole bunch of cripples there, and he only healed one of them. He didn't say, all right, all y'all cripples, get up and get out of here. It's sort of like when Lazarus is being raised from the dead. He specifically says, Lazarus, come out. He didn't say, y'all come out of there, because he'd have got a bunch of them. He said, Lazarus, I want you out. And it's the same thing with this cripple here, is you get up and take your bed and go on. And again, I think this is a Messiah sign, and, and that's the reason he does it. He also does it, as I said before, because he's duking it out with the Pharisees. And the third thing that's going on here is this guy doesn't express any gratitude. So now I'm now down to nine and a half. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful to take up your bed. But he answered them. The man who healed me, that man, 
said to me, take up your bed and walk. In other words, somebody with real authority here told me to do it. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Yeshua had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Yeshua found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Yeshua that healed him. Verse 16, And this is why the Jews were persecuting Yeshua, because he was doing those things on the Sabbath. Yeshua answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. So he does a couple of things. Thing one is he says, my father, not our father, not your father, my father. There he is basically claiming to be the son of God. The second thing is this guy rats him out. And I suspect that he's got a pretty good idea that there's going to be trouble over this. And rather than him be in trouble for carrying his bed, what he does is he does a lateral arabesque and he says, there he is, there's the guy that told me to get up and walk. And of course they gather around him and start berating him. So there isn't any particular expression of faith. He doesn't demand that the guy do anything to get healed. In fact, only sometime later when they meet a second time that he mentions sin, he just says, you want to get healed? Well, I can't get down there by myself. Get up and walk. Get out of here. That's the extent of the transaction. There isn't any call to faith. There isn't any call to repentance. None of that stuff. Very much like the previous one with the official son. But this one, I can see all sorts of messianic and prophetic purposes in that miracle. It's a miracle of the pool. That makes great sense because he's doing stuff that's obviously Messiah stuff. He's also getting in there so he can mix it up with the Jews over Sabbath, which he's going to have a series of running gun battles with them over the Sabbath. And this is the first one. That's going to be a theme throughout the book. So, again, I can see that one. But if he'd done it on a Tuesday morning, it would be less dramatic. He does it at a feast, the feast of God. Not sure which one, but the feast of God is involved here. Yeshua is picking a fight. Because he heals the guy, says, get up and walk, get out of here. The guy walks off. Yeshua fades back into the crowd. So the guy doesn't have any idea who did it and whatever. Then Yeshua later on makes a point of going around and finding this guy and buttonholing him and saying, all right, don't sin anymore. And I'm suggesting to you he's picking a fight. He wants the confrontation that is about to happen over the Sabbath. And that's the reason he goes back around and he buttonholes this guy in the temple or wherever he is and says, hey, better make sure you don't sin anymore or you'll be worse off than you were before. Oh, wait a minute, he's the one that did it. And so now we have the, the confrontation. This is not a casual, oh, by the way, gee, I just saw him walking down the street there and that's the guy. No, that's not what's happening at all. The other thing that just sort of naturally ticks them off is he talks about his father and essentially asserting that I can do whatever I want to on the Sabbath. And so he's asserting here that he is the Son of God. 
So the next thing we're going to do is we're going to skip forward and go to chapter 6. And chapter 6 is going to start a discourse on bread. So he's going to feed the 5,000. Then we're going to go across the lake and we're going to then have this long discourse on bread. And in that process, he is going to say that he is the bread of life and several other things. I'm not going to start that tonight with five minutes to go. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.